Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm your host as we work our way through the sermons that Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached uh, during the uh, 1800s primarily in London, although the publication of his sermons ran into the 1900s. I myself am a pastor in Crawley in West Sussex in the southeast of England at a place called Maidenbower Baptist Church. You can follow along with the material that we're using in the podcast by going to www.mediagratii.org slash podcasts and signing up there for a regular newsletter, which will include a link to the sermon that we're studying in any given week. We're also on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, but due to some technical difficulties with our Twitter client, uh, we've not been posting so much there in the last few days. So this week we are looking at a sermon called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. It's sermon 745 in the sequence of sermons that were published once a week in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. So that puts us right in the middle of volume 13. The week as a whole we're reading day by day from 745 to 751 and uh, 745, the first sermon this week, is our featured sermon. Then next week, it's 752 to 758, and our featured sermon is 756, which is simply entitled Work. So you can read ahead, you can look at that, or you can get the uh, the newsletter, as I said, the weekly letter, and hopefully that will be a help to you. That brings us then to this week's sermon, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. It was delivered on the Lord's Day morning of April the 14th, 1867, not at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, but at the Agricultural Hall, Islington. And I think that suggests uh, something about why Spurgeon chooses this topic and the emphasis that he has in this particular sermon. Spurgeon is uh, wise as a pastor, a preacher, in that sense, in that he takes account of his circumstances, takes account of his congregation, and the the move to the agricultural hall at Islington, uh, with its vast size, uh, gives him a particular opportunity and a particular responsibility to preach the gospel. And that is why then I think he's emphasising from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8 the unspeakable privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Spurgeon says that all God's truly sent servants have experienced much delight in the declaration of the gospel of Jesus, and it's natural that they should, for their message is one of mercy and love. It's a privilege, then, to be able to preach this good news. Heralds of salvation, says Spurgeon, you carry the most joyful of all messages to the sons of men. It's an office to which young men whose souls are full of love to Jesus should aspire. Fired with sacred enthusiasm, they should covet earnestly the best gifts, and out of love to Jesus try whether you cannot in your measure tell to your fellow men the story of the cross. Men of zeal and ability, if you love Jesus, make the ministry your aim. Train your minds to it, exercise your souls towards it, and may God the Holy Spirit call you to it, that you also may preach the word of reconciliation to the dying thousands. So 
Yes, it's a great privilege to be allowed to preach the gospel, but the Apostle Paul, while thankful for his office, was greatly humbled by his success in the work. That's an important consideration. The fuller a vessel becomes, the deeper it sinks in the water. A plenitude of grace is a cure for pride. So Paul's blessing in the work of the gospel didn't puff him up, but it actually sunk him down. I prescribe to any of you who seek humility to try hard work, says Spurgeon. If you would know your nothingness, attempt some great thing for Jesus. If you would feel how utterly powerless you are apart from the living God, attempt especially the great work of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. A preacher would be, will be thankful that he's been given that opportunity to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the confusion or hardness of men's hearts, sometimes the, uh, the resistance, the coolness, even of God's people, will throw us back upon uh, our own unworthiness and then onto the, uh, the, the worthiness, the resilience, the graciousness of our great God and his gospel. So, I pause to ask on my own account, says uh, Spurgeon, the prayers of God's people yet again, and I want to call your attention to this great master subject which engrossed all the powers and passions of such a man as Paul. And his uh, headings on this occasion, very, very simple. First of all, a glorious person mentioned, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, unsearchable riches spoken of. Thirdly, the practical conclusion, a royal intention implied, uh, which is still implied for us when his servants preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. So a lovely, simple outline, as I've said, and one which really plugs in to the, the text itself. Remember, it's simple. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so you've got the glorious person, the Lord Christ, the unsearchable riches, what are they? And thirdly, the royal intention implied, that preaching. And that's good for us as preachers uh, to remember that uh, when we uh, do something like that, the people who have got their Bibles open uh, on the page, or perhaps today the screen, uh, as we preach, they can see in the text where we're getting that language from and where we're getting then the sense from, uh, even if we're developing uh, the sense that is, uh, in Spurgeon's case here, explaining what those unsearchable riches are. So then, the Spirit of God, strengthen us in our weakness, cries Spurgeon, while we try to speak upon this glorious person. And when, when he sets off like that, that's not just rhetoric. A, a preacher always fails. We always fall short of the, the glory at which we aim. Spurgeon is going to try and explain to us, describe to us, emphasize the glory of Jesus Christ himself. And that's why he's asking for the Spirit's help and asking the people to pray that he might know that help because he's conscious that he doesn't have the, the capacity to do this adequately. But he's at least going to make a good try. Jesus Christ was the first promise of God to the sons of men after the fall. Everything was dark until the, uh, the, the Lord God spoke and gave men hope. And then as time rolls on, the, the baby is born, Emmanuel comes to Bethlehem's manger, and now God is with us. 
the latter part of his life then, he having grown up in uh, a measure of seclusion, was spent in a ministry full of sufferings to himself, but fraught or loaded with good to others. Uh, Never man spoke like that man. He was a man on fire with love, a man without human imperfections, but with all human sympathies, a man without the sins of manhood, but with something more than the sorrows of common manhood piled upon him. There was never such a man as he, so great, so glorious in his life, and yet he is the pattern and type of manhood. He reached his greatest when he stooped the lowest. And then he was seized by his enemies. He was scourged by them, though he deserved not a blow. They mocked him and and scorned him, and then he was made a sacrifice for the sins of his people. So in a fairly lengthy paragraph here, when speaking about the glorious person, the first thing that Spurgeon does is is to give us a a sort of a, a potted history of the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. This then is the person of whom he's speaking. And that gives him a lovely chance here to to give the uh, the outline of that good news as it's seen in Jesus Christ, uh, what he's done as well as who he is. Now, says uh, Spurgeon, it was the history of the crucifixion which Paul delighted to preach. Christ crucified was his theme. This old, old story which you have heard from your childhood, the story of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And having spoken of his life and death, now he emphasizes that he rose again and ascended. Then he goes on to explain that he is pleading on behalf of his people, ruling in heaven and earth. Faith sees him at the right hand of God. And Paul preached the doctrines of the gospel, yes, but not apart from the person of Christ. What Spurgeon's doing here then, as he gives us this history, as he explains some of what Christ is doing, he's making sure that it's all plugged into the person, that he's not telling us things about him, but he's telling us things about him in connection with who he is. Do not many preachers make a great mistake, he asks, by preaching doctrine instead of preaching the Saviour? Certainly the doctrines are to be preached, but they ought to be looked upon as the robes and vestments of the man Christ Jesus and not as complete in themselves. What does he mean by that? He explains... I love justification by faith. I hope I shall never have a doubt about that grand truth. But the cleansing efficacy of the precious blood appears to me the best way of putting it. I delight in sanctification by the Spirit. But to be conformed to the image of Jesus is a still sweeter and more forcible way of viewing it. The doctrines of the gospel are a golden throne upon which Jesus sits as King, not a hard, cold stone rolled at the door of the sepulchre in which Christ is hidden. Brothers, I believe this to be the mark of God's true minister, that he preaches Christ as his one choice and delightful theme. Here then is that connection with the person of Christ in all the doctrines that I think is such a helpful lesson to us as preachers. It's perfectly right to use technical and precise language to speak of justification and sanctification. That's time-tested language that is helpful in, uh, in specifying exactly what it is that we're talking about. But Spurgeon's point is, don't preach those things apart from Jesus Christ, in whom they all hold together and from whom they derive their true efficacy. He who can preach Christ, then, is the true minister. 
Let him preach anything else in the world. He has not proved his calling, but if he shall preach Christ Jesus and the resurrection, he is in the apostolical succession. And so Spurgeon pleads, oh, to speak of Christ alone, to be tied and bound to this one theme forever, to speak alone of Jesus and of the amazing love of the glorious Son of God, who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. This is the subject which is both seed for the sower and bread for the eater. This is the live coal for the lip of the preacher and the master key to the heart of the hearer. This is the tune for the minstrels of earth and the song for the harpers of heaven. Lord, teach it to us more and more, and we will tell it out to others. So Spurgeon isn't just saying this is what we should do. He's trying to do it as he does it. He's giving us that history and mystery of the gospel plainly, mystery, the revealed truth. He's showing us who the Lord Jesus is, and he's explaining how he is at the the heart of the, the whole gospel system, the whole reality. He is that good news, and every element of the good news has its proper connection to him. And so, says Spurgeon, two or three remarks for his hearers. You will perceive that the Apostle Paul preached the unsearchable riches of Christ, not the dignity of manhood or the grandeur of human nature. He preached not man, but man's Redeemer, and we need to do the same. Moreover, he did not preach up the clergy in the church, but Christ alone. And he didn't preach up the unsearchable riches of philosophy, as some do. So Spurgeon here is hitting some relevant targets for his congregation. He's in the midst of of this controversy with regard to uh, sacramentarianism and puseyism, which we've spoken about before. Uh, An abomination of ritualism is how he describes it, the emphasis that there had been then in a certain wing of the Church of England in his day to go back to Romanism. And he's saying that this whole notion of clericalism, uh, the the unsearchable riches he claims of the Eucharist and of baptism and of confession and absolution and albs and dalmatics and chasubles and I do not know what else of the rags of the whore of Babylon. He says the whole thing is is a mess. And what a philosophy. What of our our idea that somehow we can uh, penetrate to the depths of all knowledge just by our own unaided human reason. He says if you preach the riches of philosophy, you'll be left poor. My dear friends, he insists, we must come back to the gospel of Paul and may God bring all his ministering servants more and more clearly back to it, that we may have nothing to preach but that which clusters around the cross, which glows and glistens like a sacred halo of light around the head of the crucified one, that we may lift up nothing but Jesus and say, God forbid that we should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here it is. Preeminently, the crucified Christ is that glorious person of whom the apostle is speaking and who it's uh, Spurgeon's privilege and our privilege if we're preachers to preach as well. Secondly then, Paul preached the unsearchable riches of this Christ. No stinted saviour, no limited Lord to present to a few, no narrow-hearted Christ to be the head of a clique, no weak Redeemer who could pardon only those little offenders who scarcely needed it, but a great Saviour preached to the great masses, a great Saviour to great sinners. The Apostle preached the conqueror with dyed garments, travelling in the greatness of his strength, whose name is mighty to save. So this person then is proclaimed as the Redeemer, 
glorious in his fullness, glorious in his excellence, glorious in his effectiveness. Our answer to the question then, what is the unsearchable riches of Christ, or what are they, is that he has unsearchable riches of love to sinners as they are. Jesus so loved the souls of men that we can only use the so, but we cannot find the word to match with it. There's this glorious extent of love. Uh, There's a a hymn by Wesley. Uh, I don't think the language is great, but he asks why this waste of love? Uh, Why this, perhaps we could say more accurately, this flood of love? Why this extent of love, this matchless condescension, to use the language of another hymn writer? The, the the marvel is that it is while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Those are unsearchable riches that that love should be extended toward us. Then Jesus has riches of pardon for those who repent of their sins. The blood of Christ can wash out blasphemy, adultery, fornication, lying, slander, perjury, theft, murder. Though you have raked in the very kennels of hell till you've blackened yourself to the colour of a devil, yet if you will come to Christ and ask mercy, he will absolve you from all sin. So everything that you need for the cleansing of your soul is there in Christ. That's unsearchable riches. And then there's more. Riches of comfort for all that mourn. There's the, the happiness of of knowing this Jesus. There's the sweet consolation of knowing that you can hide yourself in him. Win Christ, says the preacher, and you'll want nothing beyond him. Lay hold of him and you shall say with the apostle, I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He talked about not preaching the riches of philosophy. You don't need to when you can preach the Lord Jesus, who has riches of wisdom. The desire to know has sent men wandering over all the world, but he who finds Jesus may stay at home and be wise. And then here's the positive aspect of that happiness, not just the consolation, but the riches of true happiness to bestow upon you. He is the rich man who wears heart's ease in his buttonhole. The man who can say, I have enough, is richer than the discontented peer of the realm. Spurgeon says, I know what I'm talking about. I've had more joy in half an hour's communion with Christ than in months of other comforts. My master doesn't treat his servants churlishly. He gives them as a king gives to a king, two heavens, a heaven below in serving him here and a heaven above in delighting in him forever. Maybe a bit of an echo of Samuel Rutherford in that language. And now I close this poor talk of mine. Remember, he's conscious of his shortcomings as a finite creature uh, by saying that the unsearchable riches of Christ will be best known in eternity. That's where they are most enjoyed. Christ will give you by the road and on the way to heaven all your needs. Your place of defence shall be the munitions of rocks. Your bread shall be given you and your water shall be sure. But it is there, 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 where you shall hear the song of them that triumph, the shout of them that feast. So he's looking ahead and he's saying, if you think you've got riches now, and you have, if you're experiencing unsearchable riches now, and you do, what will it be like when you have the capacity to enjoy them in all their fullness and they come to you without any uh, any measure of, of hindrance or restraint? 
So he says, my dear friends, if I could have spoken as soul would have spoken, I would have done so, but the subject would have been the same. Paul preached the gospel better than I do, but even he could not preach a better gospel. And that's something I think that every preacher needs to remember, every preacher needs to rest upon, every preacher needs to take as his consolation at the end of any other Lord's Day. Others may preach the gospel better, but they cannot preach a better gospel. It is this Christ and all his unsearchable riches which we need to preach. Uh, We need to preach him up and all others down. And so he says, I I want you to know that my master has such riches that you cannot count them, you cannot guess them, you cannot convey their fullness in words. That's what it means for them to be unsearchable. Christ is greater than you think him to be when your thoughts are at the greatest. My master's more able to pardon than you are to sin, more able to forgive than you to transgress, more ready to supply than you to ask, 10,000 times more prepared to save than you are to be saved. Never tolerate low thoughts of my Lord Jesus. And again, when we're testifying of Christ, perhaps from the pulpit if we're preachers, or if we're speaking of him to our family, to our friends, is that our heart toward him? that we are grieved at every low thought that is entertained concerning him. We need to preach the fullness, the glorious fullness of Jesus Christ to the fullness of our capacity, to the, 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 the limits of our ability. We preach up Jesus Christ. And so he says, the third and last point, there must have been a royal intention in the heart of Christ in sending out Paul to preach of his unsearchable riches. Every man must have a motive for what he does, and beyond all question, Jesus Christ has a motive. So he's asking now, why then would Christ Jesus have called upon the apostle, have brought him into this way in order that he might preach those unsearchable riches? Did you ever hear of a man, says Spurgeon, who employed a number of people to go about to proclaim his riches and call hundreds of people together and thousands, as on this occasion, simply to tell them that so-and-so was very rich? Now, remember, he's in this agricultural hall in Islington. He's preaching to an unusually large congregation. So he's now done what he can to set forth the person of Jesus Christ. He's done what he's able to, to set out the unsearchable riches of that person. And now, by way really of application, he's asking, why would anybody do this? Why would Christ send Paul or me to tell you about his unsearchable riches? If you did that and just said that someone was very rich, the crowds would say, what do we care? But if at the conclusion the messenger could say, But all these riches he presents to you, and whoever among you shall desire to be made rich can be enriched now by him. Ah, then you would say, now we see the sense of it. Now we perceive the gracious drift of it all. Now, says Spurgeon, my Lord Jesus Christ is very strong, but all that strength is pledged to help a poor weak sinner to enter into heaven. My Lord Christ is a great king, and he reigns with irresistible power, but But all that sovereign power he swears to give to believers to help them to reign over their sins. My Lord Jesus is as full of merit as the sea full of salt, but every atom of that merit he vows to give to sinners who will confess that they have no merits of their own and will trust in him. 
Aye, and once more, my Lord Jesus, my Lord Christ is so glorious that the very angels are not bright in his presence, for he is the sun and they are but as twinkling stars. But all this glory he will give to you, poor sinner, and make you to be glorious in his glory if you will but trust him. There's a motive then on our Lord's part for bidding us to preach a full Christ. So here's the the, the point at which Spurgeon is now, as it were, nailing these things to the hearts of the people who hear him. I'm not just talking about this as a theory. I'm not just describing something distant. Christ has bid me preach his unsearchable riches in order that you might enter into those riches by faith in him. And he says, I think I hear a whisper somewhere. Now, again, there's this imaginative language. There's a poor heart standing crowded in the aisle. I'm full of sin. I'm weak. I'm lost. I, I have no merit. Spurgeon says, Christ has everything that you need. All that is required is in and from him. You don't need merits or strength apart from Christ. Take my master. He will be enough for you. And so two or three particular applications. The first is, How rich those must be who have Christ for a friend. Happy those who have Christ planted as the tree of life in the soil of their hearts. You not only have his grace and his love and his merit, but you have himself. He is all your own. Again, it's the person, the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, that sweet word. Jesus is mine. All that there is in his humanity, in his deity, in his living and in his dying, in his reigning and in his second advent, all is mine for Christ is mine. This is a really good way of of summarizing rather than just saying, now remember what I said in my first point. No, he's rehearsing those things. There's the summary statement. That's precisely where he began, where he described the person. And now he's saying, that's the person who is yours. And if he's yours, how happy, how rich spiritually must you be? And there's a contrast. How transcendently foolish, on the other hand, must those be who will not have Christ when he is to be had for the asking, who prefer the baubles and the bubbles of this world and let go the solid gold of eternity. So here again is an application now to the unconverted. He's trying to draw people in and he's reminding them of the folly, uh, the, the emptiness, the misery, the danger of, st- of holding out. Come and welcome, he says. Leave your sins, leave your follies, leave your self-righteousness. Jesus Christ stands at the open door of grace, more willing to receive than you are to be received by him. Again, there's that repetition, that emphasis, uh, that reiteration of the invitation and of the willingness of Christ to receive. So he's now pressing this home. It's Christ's fullness that you need. And you need to accept then your emptiness. You need almost to to glory in the fact that it's Christ and Christ only. You need nothing but Christ, dear heart. You need pump up no tears of repentance to help Christ, for he will give you repentance if you seek it of him. You must come to him to get repentance. You must not seek that gospel blessing anywhere but at the cross. You will need no baptisms and Lord's suppers to rely upon. It will be your duty as a believer to profess your faith in him and to remember him at his table. But these things will not help your salvation. It doesn't mean that there's no benefit in them for believers who receive them by faith, but rather that they themselves do not save you. It is Christ who saves by faith. 
the the ordinances that we enjoy are, are in themselves empty unless they bring us to Christ Jesus. You will be saved by Jesus and by him alone. You need experience no terrors. You need an undergo no preparation. Christ is ready to receive you now. This really is that that old marrow theology, uh, if you know that reference, the, the marrow of modern divinity, the Thomas Boston thing. No preparation, no terrors needed. You are not going to qualify yourself in any way to come to Jesus Christ. And so he quotes, Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, tis his spirit's rising beam. All this week long, he confesses, I've been fretting and worrying because I cannot preach to you as I wish. And when each of my sermons here has been over, I've wished that I could preach it again in a more earnest and fervent manner. Now, most of us, we feel something of that when we're preaching to, I don't know, 50 or 100. Uh, what, what more when it's 200 or 500 or however many more? Spurgeon is preaching to thousands and he's saying, my soul is utterly burdened by this. But what can I do? Oh, my hearers, I can preach Christ to you, but I cannot preach you to Christ. I can tell you that if you trust in him, you shall be saved. I can declare to you that as the Son of God now risen, he's able to save to the uttermost them that come to him, but I cannot make you come. That is, I can declare the Lord Christ to you, but I cannot drag you to Jesus Christ. Yes, he says, even since the last Lord's Day, I've heard of some who have come. But must it be ones and twos out of the twenty thousands of you? What a congregation. It says, Lord God, please send us fruit. Now, my friends, if we're Christians, we may not be in a congregation of 20,000. We may not be in a congregation of 20. But if we're preachers, isn't that our desire? That out of 20, let alone out of 20,000, some may come to Jesus Christ if they have not yet done so. Don't we long for fruitfulness? How shall we pursue it? By preaching the glorious person of Jesus Christ, the unsearchable riches that are in his person, and urging upon people to come to him, not to stay in their emptiness and in their misery and in their, their lowness and in their wretchedness and in their cursedness, but to come to Christ and to find in him all the riches of God's grace stored up for us. Ask large things for my Lord, he says, for the crucified one. Isn't that what we want as churches? Shouldn't we be praying that for ourselves and those around us, that we should come to know these things? Well, may God help us to do so, to the praise and the glory of his name and of his son, Jesus Christ. So do join us again next week. Come for a sermon entitled Work, number 756. If you're able to join with us to read along, it's 752 to 758, as we said at the beginning. And if you are able, maybe to uh, leave us a review on your favorite podcast app or recommend us to others, we'd be delighted. It does make a difference and it helps us to serve you. So do take care. God bless. And may the unsearchable riches of Christ be all our happy portion. <laughs>